This is part one, episode six. Enjoy. Welcome to Behind the Peaks podcast, where we celebrate and make visible the professionals from Himalayan community in America by uncovering the challenges, difficulties, as well as the accomplishments that they have encountered along the journey. If you are someone pursuing higher studies in America and aspire to enter the professional world, or you are already in the professional world, look no further. The unique life stories of Himalayan professionals will not only inspire you but also remind you that you are not alone. I'm your host Tenzin Jigme, and in today's episode, we have someone. Who did bachelor's in environmental science at the University of Minnesota, went on to do his master's at the Humphrey School of Public Policy in Science, Technology, and Environmental Policy, and is currently a third-year PhD student in environmental social science at the School of Human Evolution and Social Change. He not only has extensive experience as a research assistant and intern, but also presented several of his works in conferences. Tashiwang Degurum, thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, thank you for uh, having me. What exactly is a PhD, and what specifically are you studying? PhD stands for Doctor of Philosophy, right? Um, I don't think anyone can explain you exactly what PhD is. It's uh, pretty much like um, each to its own, you know. For me, it's um, trying to learn, trying to be as close to expert in the field I'm pursuing. Uh, you go to bachelor's and you learn things, and then um, it's not very specific it's general at best but then you go to masters and it's it's in the middle of bachelors and phd in a sense that um it's deeper than bachelors but mm-hmm. it's not as deep as phd means phd is for only those people who are extremely passionate about the topic they are pursuing it's just trying to unfold everything uh, that comes the way like try to know everything about the topic but it's almost impossible but getting closest to it yeah Uh, what field are you doing? Are okay, you so um, think. Um, thank you for asking this question because I think um, a lot of people who have um, no friends who are doing PhD or you know in our Himalayan communities, especially, it's a it's a very rare um, choice that people make. So I think that's a great question. So PhD, a lot of there's a lot of misconceptions about PhD and very understandably so. But um, the thing about PhD is like issues that I care about is the Himalayan communities. Um, so, but you have to be very specific, like I said. Even though I'm interested in all the Himalayan communities across the Hindu Kush Himalayan range, right? Like Tibet, India, Pakistan, Afghanistan, all those countries. But I have to start somewhere. So I start from the trans-Himalayan region of the Tibetan Plateau, Upper Mustang. Mustang is just on the lap of Tibetan Plateau. In my PhD, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to understand the human nature relationship in that part of the world. In doing so, I was very interested in climate change at first. Wanted to learn how climate change kind of influenced the culture, the uh, way of life there. And then, on my first year, I learned that okay, climate change is important, but for these people, there are other concerning things than climate change, right? Like you're struggling to bring food to your table. And you don't have water, and you are constantly looking after livelihood options, right? What I know about Upper Mustang, it's a it's a tourist area. Uh, every year we have increasing number of tourists, exception 2018 and 19, and that's why it's so concerning. I think in Upper Mustang, tourism is flourishing, and that's one of the reason I'm pursuing tourism studies in Upper Mustang. But again, 
it's not only tourism. I'm using tourism as a medium to understand their life, to understand the transition from the uh, new old generation to new generation to this um, globalization full with um, infrastructures, internet services, gadgets, and especially when the migration, out-migration rate is so high. You won't believe, but we have probably more people in United States than the village itself, not counting people going to France and Kathmandu and poker. Just, and it's only going to increase from here. As a PhD student, what, what does the typical day look like? When people ask me, uh, what do I do? And I say, I'm a PhD student. Uh, the common misconception is that, oh, you must be studying all the time. Uh, that's not how it works. I mean, of course, we do a lot of studying, but... Um, to give an uh, example of my regular day, it really depends on if I have class or no, if I have conference or no, if I have presentation or no. Um, so on a regular day, I wake up. I'm not a very early morning person. I'm not very disciplined. I'm not very good with time management, so my bad. But um, on a regular day, I wake up, have breakfast. Sometimes you do skip that if you have early morning class. <laughs> uh, but uh, then you go to class. With PhD, usually you are RA or TA. RA means research assistant, TA means teaching assistant. So if you have class that day to teach, then you have to prepare, look at the syllabus and maybe go over what you want to talk about in class. Uh, if you don't have that, then you just prepare for your class and mostly you work on your own research. It's not like you give exams all the time. 50% of your time is invested in your own research and rest uh, 20% in your job and rest uh, 20% in your own classes and then rest 10% maybe here and there, you know, for recreational purposes. Um, but it's nothing like uh, how you would expect, you know, go to class, come back, go to class. Um, I think PhD, it's more important that you create network. You um, meet people who are potentially going to be helpful in the future in your field or... Uh, do networking or just go to conferences, go to presentations, go to workshop, try to meet people, try to create connections. But again, time management, because you have to know your stuff too. If I'm not wrong, the uh, not like undergraduate where you have to pay your tuition. Uh, I think if you do a TA or RA, you that, that compensates for the PhD tuition. Yeah. Well, it, so I will tell you this. I've never met anyone who is paying for their PhD. Um, so... In undergrad, when I was in my final semester, we, when I was senior, I applied for a PhD program because a lot of times you can apply directly from undergrad without going to your master's. So I, got in, I applied to one school and I got into it, but there were no funding. So a lot of universities don't even accept you if they don't have funding. But this university accepted me, um, but they said, we don't have funding, so you have to find it. So the way I do it is I contact different professors if they have research going on and I can help them with the research and they can pay for my tuition. But I couldn't find funding, so that was not an option. So otherwise I could have been done with my PhD. That was back in 2013. I could have done my PhD in, by 26 years old. But uh, financial reasons, uh, because it's too much. Like you are at your mid-20s and then it's a peak time for you to start your family to make money, to do whatever you want. Right. But if you, go to, if you choose to go to PhD, then you're being student all over again. So the trade-off is a lot. A lot, of people, a lot of times people don't realize that. I could be making money, starting a family, right? So for now, in Arizona State University, they gave me a contract for five and a half years. So that means I don't have to pay my tuition. They will pay for my health insurance and they will pay me 
monthly for my apartments and for my uh, rent and extra extra right um they will give me that money and then i will have to ta for them 20 hours a week so um and the way they decide to stipend is based on the price of rent price of groceries in that particular area so if you're studying if you're doing phd in new york you would have more money because expenses are more but in arizona it's different couldn't you just apply to more than one uh, school rather than applying to one yep that that's right and that's the that's what i learned the hard way because remember i told you i applied that in 2001 right uh, 2013 and i didn't get it so i had to um so i uh, had to work for one year and then apply for a masters because one of the reasons they gave me was like oh you don't have enough credentials so apply for a masters and i didn't want to do that so i worked for one year and then i decided maybe i should do masters so i did masters and then i worked for another six months and then didn't do anything for eight months which we can talk about says a lot about our community and the stigma um surrounding it um but on the second time uh in 2016 i applied to 11 schools because i didn't want to take any chance I would argue it would be more uh, better for you if you spend a little bit more time applying to 11 schools than waiting for next two, three years. Yeah, uh, yeah. Right? Uh, But uh, what happened is, um, so when I was doing undergrad, I was a very active student. So I had done some projects. I had uh, been very actively involved on campus. Uh, just imagine taking 21 credits, working three jobs, and uh being a president of two clubs and a member of three four clubs mm-hmm. so uh, the university university of minnesota has five different branches mm-hmm. and the one i did was in crookston but the one that's the biggest is in twin cities minneapolis st paul i think that's a hub for a lot of tibetan people too um so when i went to get an award i got an award it's called seed award scholarly excellence and equity or something like that diversity it's a diversity award so when i got that award it's from the humphrey school of public affairs they told me that you know it's a good opportunity for you so that award was my asset so i applied to humphrey and i got 100% scholarship which is almost unheard of for masters because okay now there's difference between scholarship and ta and ra right definitely. so ta ra are called fellowship because mm-hmm. in return for the money you have to do something right. but for a scholarship you don't have to do anything mm-hmm. So you get a scholarship that's like a free money. Free money. After that I worked, but again, I don't know if you have in your audience if you have any international students. The struggle of international students come there. Oh, you're an international student. I'm an international student. Oh, I, I yes. can I can definitely understand that. Right. So you want so, to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, How, uh, absolutely, man. I mean, I have a lot of friends and relatives who are here as a citizen. And then I have one or two who are in student visa. So the struggle is real for international students. you cannot get financial aid you cannot work off campus and then once you graduate you have like one year as opt optional practical training if you are in non stem field but if in stem field then you get like 27 months after you graduate you get opt right then the grace period which means you have time to find a job is 90 days so if you can find job within 90 days then you'd have to report something a lot of times you would just volunteer it'd be fine but again your time would be running out because you have one year to find a job and do the job. So that's one of the reason that I went back to school as well because otherwise I would definitely wanted to get some a real life experience like for 2 3 years and maybe go back to graduate school. But 
the struggle is real for international students because even if you're qualified, if you're good, I have so many friends who had to go back to their country because um, they didn't get H1B. If you get hired by a company, the company should be willing to sponsor you, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So if you so back in the day, if you had a sponsor, most likely you would get H1B visa. That's mm-hmm. a working visa. Mm-hmm. But these days, because so many international individuals are working in America, so they reach the limit, so they put cap. So now, even if you get a sponsor, you would be in a lottery system. So you, there's 50% chance that you would get the visa, 50% chance you won't. So first, you have to find a job. Second, you have to find a job where they're willing to sponsor you. Third, you have to win the lottery. And none of those are issues of concerning for students who have green card or who are a citizenship. So a lot of times if you talk to international students, they're very frustrated for things that other kids who are born here or are citizen take for granted. What would you advise someone who is going through their undergraduate as an international student? Okay, so uh, I'll start a step before that because a lot of times, and I've been through this uh, path myself. So when you come from India and Nepal you know, as a student, uh, you're excited to go to school. But then what you don't realize is that how are you going to pay for it? Mm-hmm. And it's so expensive. Right. So a lot of times, and I'm not even kidding, a lot of times students go to university for the first semester, then they get frustrated, they get tired because back home their parents will tell them, we cannot keep paying for your tuition. That's a lot of money if you convert that to Nepali rupees or Indian rupees, right? So a lot of students go through that. And myself included, I wanted to transfer to New York, to LaGuardia, work here and go to community college because I have my siblings here so I can leave and stay for free. So that was the plan. And that's what a lot of people do. And people from Himalayan communities, they come to New York mostly, but people from the southern Nepal, they go to Texas. So that's one. Um, but then if you are an international student, if you're thinking to pursue undergrad uh, career, I think there's so many options. Maybe the first year you will struggle, but then after first year, it gets easier. Trust me. There are so many on-campus jobs. There's so many activities you could be Get in, you could get involved and later put in your resume so that you would be a strong candidate for scholarships. And then there's summer. Then you can work over the summer. So if you really want, if you put the work, there, is, there are options. But if you're just thinking about money, then that's where a lot of problems. That's why if you ask to an individual from the Himalayan communities, that's why they're so discouraged from going to school apart from their family problems. So I'm lucky because I have four sisters and one brother, so I don't have to worry about the responsibilities back home. Uh, So I had the liberty to do what I wish. Um, But if you are someone who is um, a single child and you have to support your family back home, maybe that's a different story. Um, But uh, to answer your previous question about the jobs and, you know, uh, if an international student come here and prepare for a job, I would say don't get distracted. Our community is such that they just talk about money. They just talk about buying a house, you know, getting settled. But you have the advantage of being born in a different time. You know, you can go to school. So if you go to school, I would say try to be involved in activities as much as you can. Find something. Like if you're interested in environmental issues, find an environmental club. If you're interested in uh, politics, find a you know, political club or a social club, whatever, but get involved and keep in touch with your professor. 
if you email them once, they don't reply you. It's okay. Try again. Try again. And if you meet them, meet them on the hallway, just talk to them. Because professors, they notice if someone is very persistent. So then they might give you a job, write your good recommendation letter. Because when you are out of college, in undergrad especially, then you are in the job market after you're done. The most that matters is your experience and the recommendation letter. It's the GPA, GPA uh, that matters too, but it's mostly the experience and the recommendation letter. I think we'll take it back uh, all the way to your childhood and try to understand how you have grown uh, throughout the years and where you are right now. So you said you were born in Nepal, in Lo, that is in border of Nepal and Tibet. Yep. So you want to talk a little bit about how your childhood was at that time. First of all, I would like to clarify something. So it is something that we all go through identity crisis. So if you ask yourself, are you American? Are you Tibetan? Are you Nepali? I don't know who you are. And if you really think about it, you'll be confused for a while too, because you have an American passport, right? But you were born somewhere. So Lomantang is just 25 kilometers away from the border. That's probably 12 miles. It's from here to New Jersey. (laughs) Uh, People used to ask me, are you Nepali or Tibetan? I really didn't have a clear answer. So what I would say them is like, I'm politically from Nepal, but historically from Tibet. So in just two sentences, back in the day, Amepal, the first king of Lomantang, Lo, he was a general, army general for the king of Tibet, uh, some Shigachi or uh, I think Lhasa somewhere. What happened is Tibet was going through a lot of trauma, like a lot of war and stuff. So he took advantage of that. So he went on to form his own kingdom because he was a very smart general. So the kind of king gave him the authority to go to that place. So that's how he became the king. But since the 13th, 14th century, and His Holiness would back me up on this because he said that if you want to see real Tibet, go to Musnang. Because it's not touched by the communist government and Nepal government didn't care much. So it's intact until then. Like So that's why it's also called the Forbidden Kingdom, the ancient wall city. Um, so yes, I was born there. So I was born at house. So I don't know what my exact, exact birth is. That, that's something I always struggle with because by Tibetan zodiac sign, I'm horse, but in my passport, I'm 1991. I don't know what my birthday is, but probably around 1990, let's say. So I was born there. When I was born, it was totally different world. We didn't have electricity. We didn't have phones. We have nothing, no TV. Um, I still remember lighting a lamp. Uh, with the kerosene in it uh, and then cooking in cow dung, yak dung. And um, it's just so medieval, like Stone Age, basically. And then at the age of five, I went to Jomsom to study at a boarding school. That's because we didn't have a proper school back home. And even though the distance between Jomsom and Lomantang was only 25 miles, 30 miles, it took us three days because we didn't have road. So you either have to walk or ride on horses. So I went to school there at the age of five, and then I came here from my undergrad. How are those days, uh, so in terms of studying, in terms of the environment, in terms of your daily life? Jomsum is basically predominantly uh, Thakali people living there. But it's also a sort of melting pot because it's a new place. So the real name is Chong Samba. Samba, which means new in Tibetan, right? So uh, that was the one of two boarding schools. And that was the better one. It, they had a hostel. So the hostel, you would imagine, would be f- full with the students from the Himalayan communities because they didn't have school there. So And their parents can't 
you know, can commute. So just like myself, there are people from a, little, a lot of small villages. So we were up about 40, 50, then later it went on to be 80, 90. But it was strictly military. We wake up, uh, so we'd have different rooms. And in each room, we have bunk beds, right. like uh, maybe four or five, and depending on the room. And then you would have to wake up at 5.30, 6, you know, get ready breakfast, 6.30 maybe. Then from 6.30 to 7, 8, would have uh, tuition. And then from 8 to 8.45, we'd have uh, time to play. And then 8.45, we get ready to eat lunch. What? At 8, 8.45 a.m. Then by 9, we'd have lunch, dal batargari, always. Always the same stuff. And then by 9... 15, we'd have to walk to school because school starts at 10 in Nepal, right? And then in Nepal, there's assembly, which I don't know if they do it here. So we do the assembly at 9.45, 50. And then, you know, they would check us our nails. They would check our shoe if it's well polished and socks because everything has to be so perfect, right? Now, if you think about it, the kids here don't have to wear a uniform. Back in the day, they used to measure our hair and then used to look at the nails and look at the shoes and look at the socks and look at the tie. If you're someone who is not meeting the standards, then you would be brought up at the in front of all the students and get punished. But also the other thing I remember is we used to sing national anthem. Then we go to class. It starts at 10. Then we had a um, different break, we'd say, but it's uh, pretty much like half break at 1. Have a little light snack, like a black tea and a biscuit, half. And then we go back to school. The school would be done at 4. And then go back to hostel. Hostel was just 10 minutes walking distance. And then um, at 4.30, maybe we'd have another uh, snack, just a half glass of tea <laughs> and leftover rice or something. Uh, and then we'd start tuition at 5 and then go until 6.30. Then maybe 30 minutes playtime and dinner by 7. Very military. Very In weekends, it was a little different because we can wake up at 7. But then it was all about doing chores. And one thing I would like to share is that after lunch, lunch would be around 10, 11. Then we were forced to sleep for three hours oh, until 1 p.m. Wow. And we hated sleeping. <laughs> Trust me, like my teacher would come and check us if we were sleeping. We wouldn't sleep. We would do anything but sleep. But then we can't get out of room. So there's not much to do inside the room. And now looking back, I would do anything to sleep. <laughs> it's like, okay, can you just give me three hours to sleep every day? So my teacher used to tell Oh, you don't understand, you know, thirst for sleeping if you're an adult. But mm. you will realize this mom. Yeah, and then I remember his words. And now, <laughs> trust me, I can, I can sleep anywhere, anytime. At that time, you sing both the national anthem, Nepali and Tibetan, or just Nepali? Just Nepali. Oh, wow. That's... We didn't have any Tibetan um, uh, courses offered in that school. Oh. Like I said, it's uh, predominantly Thakali. They have identity crisis too. They are half Buddhist, half Hindu. But um, so you went to high school here, right? Yeah. And just looking around, did you have any kind of um, epiphany? I mean, do you, did you realize anything like, uh, oh, I'm a different person here? Or I don't know, maybe well, it's a not, melting pot, maybe. Not, not when I was in high school. I recently I, real, I mm. had the epiphany that I, I, there's, this is something I, I need to look into more, examine more. But uh, at that time, I was so naive. I, I think I didn't think too much. And also we had... Uh, clubs small clubs like right. Nepali Tibetan clubs right. so that that made me uh, connect back to my roots I asked this because um now maybe you'll ask me later but the reason I chose to do PhD is because I learned the value of education very early on so when I was in Jomsum which is predominantly Thakali people they were more educated they're more successful they're better businessmen than us they're more civilized 
in their terms. But I realized that they would kind of suppress us. Hmm. Like, you know, like, oh, bote. You know, that's a derogatory term mm -hmm. for people who are not educated, dirty or whatever. Mm -hmm. So it hurt me, right? Because these are my people, right? So back then, I used to think, I need to do something about this. And education was the only way. Because, okay, we were poor early 2000s, but then our people started going to America and started making a lot of money. But it didn't change anything because they would be, oh, they might have money, but they don't know education. So they have to come in front of us even to make a citizenship card or anything. Like we have to bend over them, right? In front of them, we have to just kneel because you have money, but it's a bureaucratic process. You have to depend on them. You have to rely on them. So that's when I realized that education is what we need to represent ourselves. Mm -hmm. Up and later in my life, I realized that even more because I went to college in Kathmandu. All of my friends' parents were doctors, engineers, you know, businessmen. And they asked me, what do your parents do? And I was like, businessman, but it's a petty trade. My father used to go to Tibet, um, um, buy carpets, yaks, ships, uh, and then bring uh, salt sometimes. Sometimes take um, rice from Pokhara because the people up there, they love that rice. Um, but, you know, that's not a legit businessman, but. My house, my mom was a house, um, housewife, but uh, I didn't know anybody in my whole circle who were engineers or doctors, you know. And but if you really look at the proportion, the number of um, professionals we have in community is insignificant compared to the rest of them. Till tenth grade, you did your uh, yeah. schooling in Jomsom. You said, you, "How are you standing at that time in, with regards to education? How are you? How are you doing in your classes?" Now this is a very emotional story. So I was very smart. When I was like in nursery, so I was bumped in one class. Right. You know, like I didn't have to go to one. I had to go from KG to two. And then at the age of uh, at grade three, four, I started to divert, right? So I was a very naughty kid, very probably the most wanted in the whole school. Like I was a bully. I'm not ashamed to say that. But then uh, back then it was the environment like that. Right. If you don't bully, you have to get bullied. So looking back, it's horrible. But again, it was what it is, right? So I started to fail. Like we had like three terms, first term, second term, and third term. So third term dictates you. So if you fail in third term, you will stay in the same class. But if you fail in first term, second term, it doesn't really matter as long as you pass the third term. So I would either fail in first term or second term, but I'd never failed in third term. But when I was in fifth, sixth grade, what happened is um, my mom got diagnosed with cancer. So we didn't realize this, but I think this is a problem with our community in general because they're so strong, they're so uh, resilient. They they don't like to complain about small pains, you know. Your mom, my mom, they will, if there's a little pain, they will just suffer it. They will just take it, right? So what my mom did is she had pain, but she thought maybe it's minor, so I don't want to complain about the small things. So she didn't tell anyone or she didn't get treated, but later it was too late. So turns out she had uh, pancreatic cancer in 2004. Right, and the doctor said she has only six months to leave. I was young; I didn't know anything. So that winter, so in Jomsom, because we didn't have summer holidays because it's a cold place, but we had like two to three months winter holidays. So we'd go to Kathmandu because it's warmer there. So one winter, I went to the same year my mom got sick. I went to Kathmandu. I'd heard that my mom was sick, right? So I went inside and I said, "Where is my mom?" And then 
someone told me, that's your mom. I didn't recognize my mom because she was like so skinny. Her skin was all pale. She just looked like a skeleton with a skin on it. So, you know, no matter how young you are, but you can always feel your mother's love, right? There's like special bonding with mother and kid. So I was so into it at the age of what, eight, nine years old. I was just, it was just different, you know, like you don't have the brain to think it like that but then it just happens that's the beauty of mother-son relationship right so after i went back to school my mother said hey if you fail one time i'm not gonna take medicine that's like emotional blackmail i was what <laughs> like 10 years old and she told me that and wow. ever since i never failed and um i did good uh, i was third fourth i never became first or second but it was always third fourth yeah. i passed uh, um SLC um, with good division. Now they don't do it the same way, but it's different now. What did you want it to be when you grew up at that time? What were your aspirations? I always remember that moment because one of the most frequently asked questions when we were kids are, what is your aim? Uh, right? And uh, then yeah. students would stand up. I want to be a doctor. Yeah. I want to be engineer. But anyway, I always told I wanted to be a scientist. And people would laugh at me. Because, you know, back then it, seems so distant you know so it seems so impossible that people would laugh at me but i was scientist three years ago like a research scientist not like a but then again back then we didn't have proper idea of what scientist is for us scientist means like discovering new things you know it's a different kind of scientist but i always wanted to be scientist um so you could call me research scientist now in Jumsum, if I'm not wrong, then you, you cannot or there isn't an option to study after 10? Uh, back then, there wasn't. I see. Now there is, but when I started, there when wasn't. When you started, that, there wasn't. So that, that had you uh, move out of Jumsum and then... Uh, so what happened after that? So yeah, I went to Kathmandu. Uh, we had a house. So, you know, by the time we were in, financially doing okay, because three of my older siblings have already been abroad, right? So I went to Zever Academy and um, I started my plus two. So in Nepal, there is um, like a different field you can choose, like hospitality, arts, commerce, and science. And science is always uh, considered to be the toughest. So I was in science. I went there, but it was, it was boring, man, because I was 16. I just got out of school. You know, you have the little freedom you have because I've been in boarding school for like all my life. And I had like motorbike. You know, everyone then, has a, once once they uh, get out of ten, they they always have a motorbike. So the the problem back then is like Rongba, you know, like the Bound and Chetri, they don't have motorbikes. They're so disciplined. Like, of course, few had, but most of them don't. But our community, because you know, we have like brother and sisters in America and somewhere. It's not like I got bike. I had to cry for it. <laughs> I said, buy me a bike, buy me a bike. It's just like basically throw a tantrum. But um, yeah, it says a lot about uh, our community, you know, like we weren't really paying attention in education. We're paying attention to everything else but education. Yeah, like, usually we, in our community, we, we like to, I guess, show off. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, there's a saying, that means cut your coat according to your size. You know, like it's not like those wrong bus couldn't afford it. It just they didn't seem it's necessary, right? So you did your two years of plus two, as you call it, in Nepal, uh, that is college. After that, you came to America. You applied and got into University of Minnesota. How was that transition now, so coming to America? So I came, I landed in JFK. My brother came pick me up in his 
back then he had a stupid car, but it worked. So he, he picked me up and then um, he took me home and there were our family members, food waiting for me. And they gave me money. And the next day, I landed here on January 1st, 2010. So the new year. So a couple of my friends who had been here three, four years prior to me and with their family, they took me to Times Square. And <laughs> and, and I, was, I was so naive. You know what I did? I took a flag of Nepal and raised it high in Times Square and took a picture and posted it on social media. Looking back, it was so stupid. But again, whatever. So everything was different. But what really fascinated me is the coffee. They took me to Starbucks. And I tried it and I was like, what the fuck is this? Because it's so bitter. In Nepal, we drink coffee, but it's mostly with milk and cream. And you, it's never that strong. Uh, I was here for five, six days, and then I went to Minnesota. And it's a funny experience. You know, in Nepal, we don't have the time difference, right? So the whole country has one. <laughs> New York and Minnesota has time difference. That is like Midwest. So when I was flying, I had, to, I had a transit. And then I was like, Damn, I have 20 minutes. So I was running like crazy at the airport. But turns out because of time difference, I was an hour early. But I was running so fast through the airport. And you know, it was winter. So I had like this thick jacket and the muffler and the scarf. And then my suitcase, I was running like crazy. And it was just like for nothing. <laughs> it was all for nothing. And I had to wait there anyway. So, uh, But I got to Minnesota it was so bad, man, because they had blizzard going on, snow blizzard. And I've never seen a snow blizzard, even though I'm from the mountains. You settled down in the first few days or months, and you're in Minnesota. Right. Um, how did you adapt to this new uh, schooling system? Again, like I said, I've been pretty fortunate because my sister and my cousin were already in that school. Oh, So that's one of the reasons I went to that school. Oh. So that's why we didn't have a lot of Nepali or Tibetan students. It was really easy for me in terms of transition because my sister had uh, everything ready for me. But again, there are a lot of things that I had to deal with myself, right? So in terms of culture shock, I think the first that comes to mind is like when you meet your professor, you say, hey, professor, you look face to face, you look into the eyes and say, uh, if your name is Sonam, hi, Sonam, hi, doctor, whatever, right? But in Nepal, there is never that. You know, in our culture, you don't look into face like that. And then you don't talk to them by your name you know you always put a put a prefix before their name and then the language it's that you know in nepal in nepali language there's a different term for different pronouns like for older younger your age but in english it's same so we always knew that we went to boarding school but yeah, yeah. when you put that in practice yeah. it's different because i was talking to the chancellor and i said you have a good day. And that sounds so disrespectful. <laughs> I mean, like he didn't care. But for me, that sounds like I think I just did something wrong. Yeah. Um, so it was it was hard at first because and the other culture shock is the food. And I hated the food because the first semester, no matter what, you had to eat at the campus cafeteria. They eat cold food. You know, we don't eat cold food. They eat cold food and there's so much salad and they put cheese everywhere. It's just so nasty. And sometimes like they have like the sweet food you know like <laughs> chili and stuff like that and i was like oh man i couldn't so i survived on ramen that you find in walmart it's not even the korean asian ramen it's just like the 20 cents i survived a lot on that it looks like you you had people who were, who were ready to help you and then right. 
especially people who came from our the same community and then transitioned to the, this new environment. So it wasn't that much of a difficult uh, transition for you. And I, I assume they, they also guided you uh, in with regards to getting more involved in activities rather than just going to classes. Right, right. My sister was already in her senior, uh, senior year. So she had gotten a scholarship and all that thing. So she told me, hey, you need to do this, do this, do that, so you can be a better contender for scholarships and on-campus jobs. So she guided me. And the worst thing, the classes, man, a lot of students don't know, so they take whatever classes they want. And then when they come uh, to their junior, senior year, then they regret because that class is irrelevant or that classes cannot be transferred, you know, so it's not going to a major. So a lot of times you end up taking classes that are not, counted as you move forward so that's one of the uh, guidance i think a lot of students need the another thing is like just saying you know what clubs to join i mean what is your interest just like giving them basic um, guidance i think helps a lot too uh, yeah my sister and my cousin they were really good students too we had a different reputation like uh, we had an international night and then we did like uh, nepal night but then would give them tibetan food you know like because that's our culture so in a sense we three were the representatives of that part of the world to them oh, I see. Were, were you is just three of you in that yeah just three of us and we had one nepali guy and he was there we had two other students a year later the so you, you started uh getting involved right at your freshman year yeah oh wow that's, yep. that's yeah because that's pe- because of my sister otherwise i would be just watching youtube or movies in my room she kind of forced me how did you even choose or she she recommended you to choose those clubs so we have because it's a small campus, so the International uh, Student Club, we would call it MIC, Multicultural International Club, basically. So it would be the representation of international or um, different countries there. So it had a strong presence because it's a very far north. It's very close to Canada border, like two hours from Canada border. So it's a very isolated place in America too. So for them, international students, what they represent is what the outer world looks like. So they've never met anyone from Nepal before us. So they didn't even know where Nepal is, right? So she encouraged me to be in that club so that, you know, it's like I'm more suitable to that, right? And then she knew that I was interested in environmental issues. So she asked me to go to the sustainability club. It's called CSST, uh, Crookston Institute for Sustainable Development. So stuff like that, you know, she would analyze me and my interest and then ask me to go there. So it's not um, just uh, any club, it no. is more curated to yeah, your... Right, absolutely. Uh, and and that, that's the another decision that the young generation should make because there are like thousand clubs. Right, but definitely. where do you fit and what is going to be more useful to you in the future? That's the end of the first part. Please stay tuned for the next part for episode 6 where Tashi shares his project in Nepal called Clean Water for Everyone as well as exactly what his PhD work entails. Until then, you can find us on Instagram at btp.podcast that is btp.podcast to know when the next part will be released. 